I've always loved breaking bread with people and building community. I'm an immigrant. I've moved around many different places. Mm-hmm. And food was always central to finding my place, which is where the idea of our place came from building a brand rooted in culture and representation and connection. We make products that make it easier and more joyful to cook at home. But uh, the universe had different plans. And when I was 22 years old, I ended up quitting my job because my friend Malala Yousafzai was attacked by the Taliban mm-hmm. for her activism. And in the aftermath of that, her and her father asked me to co-found an organization called the Malala Fund that would help girls around the world access an education. So it's now an organization doing tremendous work. Your friend has just been attacked by the Taliban for speaking up. And now you're going to be doing that times 100. Was there worry? Yeah, both of those questions are very legitimate questions and very legitimate fears. Mm -hmm. My first response was no. Trillions are traded in the financial markets every day and nonprofits are just a drop in the bucket in comparison. And I believe if we are to tackle the world's most pressing challenges, we need businesses to show up in a different way. Mm -hmm. Everything we do either helps our culture, hurts our culture, or doesn't impact our culture. So how do we make most decisions in a way that helps our culture? And that is... Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place, for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone and welcome back to Millennial Mind. I have one really quick favour to ask from all of you. If you haven't already, wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast, if you could press the follow and subscribe button, it would really mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting me on this journey here. Let's get into it because I cannot wait for you to see my new studio and my incredible guest today. Shissa, welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to have you here and I know that you know, you're know you only in London for a short period of time so to take out time to have this conversation is really, really so lovely. So I've read your story many times. I've read all the articles that I could about you. I've listened to several of your interviews and I'm so inspired by your journey. Thank you. But for people who don't know who you are, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, I'm Shiza. I'm the co-founder of Our Place. Mm-hmm. Um, and Our Place is a mission-driven brand that's all about bringing people together around the power of sharing a home-cooked meal. I've always loved breaking bread with people and building community. I'm an immigrant. I've moved around many different places. Mm -hmm. And food was always central to finding my place, which is where the idea of our place came from 
building a brand rooted in culture and representation and connection. We make products that make it easier and more joyful to cook at home. Mm-hmm. We also make sustainable and non-toxic products. So really tackling challenges in the industry head on. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would say I've always been entrepreneurial. Before this, I co-founded the Malala Fund, uh, which works on girls' education issues around the world and have always just had a real passion for creating solutions to the problems that I see. I love that. And when I was reading your story, I, I, I don't want to give too much away. I'm like, how do I word mm-hmm. this question? But when I was reading your story, I kind of saw that kind of coming through in so many different angles. And it made me question, actually, because coming from a different country, especially as a daughter of immigrants myself, education has always been at the forefront of everything that my parents have wanted me to do. Mm-hmm. Being an entrepreneur, however, perhaps hasn't been. Mm. So was that the same for you? Because you grew up in Pakistan, right? Yeah, I would say it was. Uh, my parents were very obsessed with education. Yeah, My mother never taught me to cook because she didn't want me in the kitchen. She wanted me to go out there and do something different with my life. Mm-hmm. So ironic that I now run a, a cookware kitchenware brand. Um, but I had never heard the word entrepreneur growing up. I grew up in Islamabad, the capital city of Pakistan. Uh, there weren't many startups. There certainly weren't women entrepreneurs being given funding or the opportunity to build. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was 18, I was, I, I was given the opportunity to study at Stanford University. I was given a scholarship. And so was sort of thrust into the heart of startups and tech and venture capital, and that was my first exposure. But I will say that I was always entrepreneurial, and mm-hmm. I think being an entrepreneur is not just about starting a company. It's about taking initiative. It's about creating something. It's about seeing something wrong in the world and building something to make it better. Mm-hmm. And I think I was doing that from a very young age, largely in women's rights, girls' education, human rights, through the lens of nonprofits and activism. I didn't know how to do that through the lens of business. I'd have to move across the world and be exposed to different things. Mm -hmm. But that same spirit of entrepreneurship, I think I had within me from a very young age. I love that. It's so interesting you say how your mom didn't encourage you to cook. I've spoken on this podcast previously about how I don't really have a love for cooking. And the main reason for that is because it was always said to me that I had to do it. Mm. You know, Shwana, you have to learn how to cook for your husband and your family one day when you get married and have children. And so for me, I wanted to go against that stereotype. And it's only now that I've moved out that I'm actually enjoying cooking. But I never wanted to be known as someone who was a good cook. Well, that's exactly it. Right? Right. Because it was pushed onto me. And so I I kind of moved away from it so much. But it's interesting that your mom actually said to you, you don't have to. You don't have to cook. No, she grew up in a time and place where she had to cook. She was raised in a very conservative family. She was the oldest of four daughters um, and was told from a young age that her only options in life were to be a wife and a mother. Mm -hmm. And she really wanted my sister and I to be free. And so... Whenever there was something cooking in the kitchen, she wouldn't let us come in. And I always thought it was because she was worried that we would get hurt. There's hot water, hot yeah. oil. But I realized later it was it was her way of setting us free. But then I moved halfway across the world, which she hadn't planned on. Right. Because um, I got a scholarship to go to America. And I was far away from my entire family, my aunties, and and I couldn't feed myself. And it became incredibly disempowering wow. to not be able to cook a meal. And that's when I started learning how to cook and found joy in it and was sort of faced with all the inherent Mm. issues within the kitchenware cookware industry that I wanted to change. 
I love hearing stories about people who have been through an experience themselves mm-hmm. and don't pass that on that generational generational trauma. Yeah. It's it's the best story I can ever hear because often I feel that when you've been through something mm-hmm. and you feel resentment about it or you feel that was unfair or unjust. So let's just say in your mom's case, that was the only option that was given to her. Yeah. A lot of women then say, well, if I had to go through it, you have to go through it. Right. And I love meeting women who are like, I had to, didn't have, I had to do this and I don't want you to do this. And my mom's the same. Yeah. You know, I've moved out. I'm unmarried at 30. I um, want to move to America next year. All of the things that, you know, I've traveled by myself, all of the things that she was never able to do. Yeah. And never once has she said to me, I wasn't able to do it. So you're mm-hmm. not going to do it. She said, I want you to do it because I was never able to do it. Yeah. And I want you to feel happy in that. And I love that. That's so I'm beautiful. interested to know that your your parents, despite both of your parents, they have a traditional upbringing? They did, yes. So despite that, they, I say allow. I use that, I use that term incorrectly. But they were okay with you going to Stanford and moving across the world? They were. I mean, they were, they missed me. Mm-hmm. Um, but they... I think they had decided that their children would have the very best education in the world. Wow. They didn't realize it would take us that far away from them. And, yeah. you know, it, it there is an inherent sadness that I think you realize as you grow older mm. in having your family scattered in all different places. There's also an incredible joy to it because, you know, within yourself, you carry all these cultures and traditions and you love people in so many different places and you have so much more perspective because Mm. you understand so many different opinions and ways of living. Um, So there's both sort of this joy and sadness, I think, to that immigrant experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But but they did. And and I think that even though they had to face, you know, the criticisms and the pressures that society put on them for giving their daughters so much freedom, Mm -hmm. uh, they believed in us and uh, and wanted more. I feel like I'm going to cry. I, mm. I always get so inspired by parents who believe in their children. Mm. I don't know if you've seen King Richard or The Swimmers. Mm-hmm, Both yeah. movies Beautiful. where parents really believe in their child yeah. and they succeed and they thrive. And clearly that's worked for you. Mm. So you moved to um, America. You studied mm-hmm. at Stanford. And then what did you study? I studied international relations. Okay. And then you moved on to? Then I graduated and I took my first job out of college at McKinsey, the strategy consulting firm. And um, I moved to Dubai because I wanted to be closer to home and because McKinsey was doing several education projects in Pakistan based out of the region, based out of the Dubai office. So I was trying to, you know, get training, um, have the ability to live and work different places, but also still stay connected to the things that I cared about. So I moved to Dubai. Um, and, you know, planned on doing the whole business training that they offer, arguably one of the best in the world, um, then going to business school, really sort of getting my resume nice and thick uh, before I, I set out on my own to build something. And, you know, I had really been sort of um, inspired by what was going on around me at Stanford, being mm. in Silicon Valley, being surrounded by entrepreneurs, everyone was building companies. Technology was transforming so many parts of how we live and work. And I wanted to combine that with my training and and impact to build a mission-driven business. Um, So that was really what sort of set me out on that path to McKinsey. Uh, But uh, the universe had different plans. And when I was 22 years old, I ended up quitting my job um, because uh, my friend Malala Yousafzai um, was attacked by the Taliban Mm -hmm. for her activism. 
And in the aftermath of that, her and her father asked me to co-found an organization called the Malala Fund that would help girls around the world access an education. So my time at McKinsey was cut short. At 22, I moved back to America, to New York, um, and co-founded the Malala Fund um, and helped get that off the ground. Um, And it's now an organization doing tremendous work. It is. Um, And from there, really moved forward to start our place. I'm a huge, huge fan of Malala and everything that she does. And actually, I went to the Swimmers premiere, mm. and she was apparently in the audience, and I had no idea. And it was only afterwards when I saw the photos that I was so upset that I didn't see her. But, you know, everything she is doing is, is phenomenal. Yeah, she's extraordinary. She really is. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know, when you say you co-founded the Malala Fund, what, what does that mean exactly? Um, well, I uh, was the founding CEO mm-hmm. and sort of helped bring this idea of, you know, creating a nonprofit that was based on Malala's voice and her ideas and her experiences that would help other girls around the world also share their stories, advocate for change in their communities and access an education. So, you know, that was everything from figuring out how to set up a 501c3 to, you know, we were talking about you're redesigning your logo, mm-hmm. designing a logo, raising donations, figuring out which programs around the world were having an impact that we could support, mm-hmm. showing up for important issues, um, and really setting the the early foundation um, for that incredible organization. I'm going to ask, um, I guess, an Indian parent question, as, as I would say. I think if, if that was my position and I had mm. a job at McKinsey, I just graduated from Stanford, mm. and I was asked to co-found a non-for-profit organization, Yeah. my first parent's question would be, how are you going to leave that salary? And how are you going to, you know, support yeah. yourself? And the second question would be, your friend has just been attacked by the Taliban for speaking up. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to be doing that times 100. Mm-hmm. Was there worry? Yeah, both of those questions are very legitimate questions and very legitimate fears. Mm-hmm. And the first, my first response was no. I said, I'm 22 years old. I don't have the experience. Mm-hmm. I, you're out of college. I have no savings. At the time, I was a Pakistani citizen, which essentially means you have a passport that doesn't allow you to travel or work anywhere, um, unless you are employed by a large multinational firm like McKinsey that, you know, yes. helps you out. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yes, this this um, was something that people cared about, but there was no indication that people would actually invest in our mm-hmm. ideas, right? In a nonprofit, it's it's an organization. It requires resources and structure and talent, and that is an entirely different thing. Um, and so, my very first answer was no. And and you know, I was w- my parents were worried about safety, and we were getting um, you know phone calls and and uh, visibility in a way that that made us feel unsafe. Um, but I remember I was sitting at my desk at McKinsey, and I was supposed to be working on a project uh, and I kept switching tabs on my computer and the tab I was switching to is this email I was writing to this um, editor uh, to work on Malala's first book to share her story and I just remember as I kept switching tabs realizing that it was now or never and uh, my heart had a clear answer and so I sort of took the leap never looked back and I really do believe that there's moments in all of our lives where we have to decide who we are. And this is true in our careers, in our relationships, in our values. And in those moments, um, our job is to not make the decision based on fear, but based on hope. 
Um, so that's what I did, and I'm, I'm very glad that I made that choice. I really believe your gut is such a powerful indicator. Mm-hmm. And often when I've been confused about a decision, I really have just learned to ask myself instead mm. of listening to the noise and listening to what everyone else wants you to be because my parents want me to be one thing. My friends want me to be another thing. Yeah. A random person on the internet wants me to be one thing. But mm-hmm. actually, who, who do I want to be? Yeah. And I think, we, like you said, we all go through those moments in our life where we really have to decide mm-hmm. what do I stand for and what do I want to do? Yeah. So talk me through that journey of, you know, pivoting, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then kind of founding your new company, Our Place. Yeah. I mean, I think pivoting it or being open maybe is 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 said differently. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so foundational. And um, I think it is something that I've always had is a sense of openness. Um, and I think a sense of showing up. I think that might be one of the things that has most shaped my career is when things happen, I try and show up. And that's how I started the Malala Fund and... That's how I started our place, mm-hmm. and none of it was the plan. The plan was very different. Um, yeah, but life will take you places, and in those moments, you have to decide if you're going to show up or not. And I think nowadays, as people build careers, there are no straight paths, right? That time when you entered a company and stayed there for thirty years and retired—that that doesn't really happen anymore. And yes, there are deeply technical fields where you do have. Um, a lot of training and a lot of education mm-hmm. that you have to follow. But for most of us, you yeah. know, who are graduating and then figuring out what we're doing with the rest of our lives, we will have multiple paths. We will change direction. We will do many different things. And that ability to do that is really important because a lot of the jobs that exist today will not exist in 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and, and even at our place, and I, you know, hired probably 150 people over the last three years the folks who thrive are those who are adaptable who don't just do one hyper specific thing really well but who can wear multiple hats and figure things out and adapt as the needs of the business adapt so I think that openness to change is is a critical skill Um, for me I I wanted to build a mission-driven business I have spent a lot of my my life in nonprofits. I deeply believe in the impact nonprofits have, but trillions are traded in the financial markets every day, and nonprofits are just a drop in the bucket in comparison. And I believe if we are to tackle the world's most pressing challenges, we need businesses to show up in a different way. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I wanted to build a mission-driven business, and with our place, it was addressing an issue that was very personal. Which was? Our place was really founded on this notion of bringing people together around the dinner table. Mm -hmm. I'm an immigrant. My husband's an immigrant. We literally found our place in America by cooking food, having people at our dinner table, Mm -hmm. arguing over whose cooking is better, um, mine, (laughs) and uh, and sharing stories. And, you know, we have an absurdly large dinner table in our house. It fits 16 people. There's two of us. I know. Wow. yeah. When you have arguments, just sit at the opposite end. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but mostly we have people over. And, you know, we were starting this company at a time of rising division, rising otherness, rising populism, mm. um, Brexit, right? Um, this this fear of, of one another. And we wanted to get more people cooking and sharing meals because food tells our stories. And food is about our connection to our culture, our mm-hmm. community, 
our traditions, our bodies, our food systems. And so that's really what our place was founded on. Now, from a product design perspective, that meant a bunch of things. That meant designing better products that made it easier to cook. You know, not selling 16-piece sets like the rest of the industry, but creating one pan and one pot that replace an entire cookware set. Um, working against um, the inclusion of chemicals that we believe to be harmful, PFAS chemicals specifically that have been linked to a lot of adverse health effects that are still found in 95% of nonstick pans. Wow. Um, we really wanted to create a healthier, safer alternative to that. Doing a lot of work in sustainability, um, recycled materials in our products, in our packaging, mm-hmm. um, and also just bringing joy and play because, you know, we talked about how once cooking was a choice, yep. it became way more fun. And yes. so our products are beautiful, not just because we love good design, we do, but because when you have a beautiful product and you leave it out on your stovetop, so you're like, you know what, I'm not going to order soggy uh uh, take out again. Yeah. I'm gonna just whip something up real quick. Mm. It's really, it's really interesting because I believe that every idea starts with a dream. Mm-hmm. You know, when people say, "Oh, you're just dreaming," everyone starts with a dream. Every single person who thinks of an idea is a dreamer, and the mm-hmm. only thing that distinguishes a dreamer from a successful business owner is the ones that take action and the ones that do. Mm-hmm. And so, I always say, my biggest piece of advice to anyone is dream mm-hmm. and then take the action. Just start. But, you know, I read on, on, online that you had a 30,000-person waiting list. Mm-hmm. I was shocked. 30,000 people wanted yeah. to buy. And did you release one product at first? So we launched with our Always Pan, which is our iconic 8-in-1, 10-in-1 now pan. Just um, ordered. Took me literally been, an hour to decide the color. It's amazing. <laughs> All the colors are beautiful. You don't have to buy just one. Uh, yeah. Um, no. <laughs> but it's it's incredible, and it's, you know, gone viral. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, it really does make cooking way easier. Um, and then we launched with one set of plates, one set of bowls, one set of glasses. That was it. We called it, you know, family dinner, everything you needed to cook and share a meal with your chosen family. Oh my God. And those were our first four products. Um, and since then, we've probably released about 70 products. Mm-hmm. But everything is designed from scratch. We started about a year and a half before. So it takes us a year and a half to make anything at minimum, because we are starting with a problem statement, which is how do we make this specific thing better? So if it's cooking, how do we design better cookware? If it's a prep, how do we make prep simpler and easier? And so we're, we're really designing every product from scratch and finding that intersection of form and function. It's, uh, it's revolutionary. If I'm completely honest, when I was reading it and I was seeing all the different things it does, it's perfect for someone like me because I've just moved out and I have a very small kitchen. Mm-hmm. I don't have space for several different things. Yeah. And it looks amazing. And so you feel good naturally when you're yeah. cooking. And I think it's made me feel a little bit, well, I haven't got it yet, but I feel like it's made me feel a bit excited to be like, oh, I can make this and I can make this and I can yeah. do this. Because for me, I make the same food every single week, uh, for about four meals in a row. And so I'm very excited to show it off if I'm completely honest. But, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm keen to understand. You had this mission statement. You had this problem statement about bringing people together. You wanted it to be more inclusive. You wanted to remove all the clutter in people's kitchens. Mm-hmm. How did you get people to have a 30,000-person wait list? That's huge. Yeah. And then when you break it down, I don't mean to say this in a, in a what's the word? I don't mean to minimize the effort here. But 30,000 people waiting to buy a pan. Hmm. It's crazy, hmm. right? Why? 
It was, it was, I think, a combination of things. I think that it was such a game-changing product. There was really nothing like it from a function standpoint, but also from a design standpoint. The, the category was all, you know, uh, silver, mm. metal, and, and dark color. It was very little use of color, design, very little innovation. Um, I think the brand really resonated with people because it was a brand that really focused on culture and inclusion, and every other brand was about being all, being exclusive right it was perfectly styled five course meals on multi-million uh ho dollar homes um and um i think also it was not really about the why behind cooking you know it was here's how sharp our knives are and here's how many plies are in our cookware but it wasn't actually getting to the heart of why we cook which is to nourish ourselves and the people we love so i think it was the first brand that was really changing that and then you know I think we we started in this very organic grassroots way where we were just, you know, sharing our product with folks um, who were recommending it, um, you know, doing small grassroots events, working with local nonprofits, mm -hmm. and then the word started to spread. And when the word started to spread, it felt like it was everywhere, mm -hmm. and everybody you knew had it, and you wanted to get one, and all your favorite influencers were recommending it, and. Snoop Dogg was cooking with it, and Cameron Diaz was cooking with it, and Gwyneth Paltrow was cooking with it. And so it was sort of, you know, on the one hand, very grassroots, but then also, um, you know, we had folks like Selena Gomez um, who were supporting the brand. Speaking to you, hmm. I can't help but ask you this question, and it's tell me your secret. You know, hmm. tell me how you, a piece of advice that you would give to someone starting a new brand something completely unique and different with a really clear vision and purpose, but they don't know how to market it. I think if you have a clear vision and purpose, then you know how to market it. I think most brands that don't know how to market are unclear on what their true story or purpose is. Um, so I, I would say if you have a true vision or purpose, then just tell that story. Mm. Tell your story, tell the story of your community, and that will resonate. And then make sure that you are starting with a group of supporters, community members who get it. Don't try to be everything to everyone. Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'll meet young entrepreneurs who are like, well, we tried doing this and that's not working. So now we're going to try doing that. And it's so early mm -hmm. and, and it's a dilution of who they are so early. I think brands that are beloved they know who they are and they know who their community is and that connection is built really tightly and it grows from there if you don't have the patience to do that initial work you're going to dilute who you are why you exist and what you stand for mm -hmm. um, so getting really really tight on that storytelling is a, a very powerful tool and i can't remember where i heard the story but i remember someone saying nike doesn't in his advertisement say this jacket is waterproof it helps me run it just shows someone happy running. So they're telling the story. But there was two things you mentioned there. One, you said it's really important to hire the right people. Mm -hmm. And two, you said it's really important to you to have a diverse group of people that are working for you. Mm -hmm. How do you hire the right people? And why is it so important for you to have a diverse group of people working for you? I think diversity of experience and background means diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. Right, You can't have diversity of thought if everyone grew up the same way in the same place and went to the same school. Okay. And we're a brand that's about culture. You know, We celebrate Diwali, 
and Eid and Shabbat and Noruz as loudly as we celebrate Easter and Christmas. And we believe everyone's traditions are worth celebrating equally loudly and joyfully. And we can't be a brand that's about culture externally and not have a diverse group of people driving the product development mm -hmm. and the storytelling internally. So for us, it's been part of our DNA from, from day one. And because it's been part of our DNA from day one, it is something that has been um, very natural for us because, you know, when you have people from different backgrounds at your, at your company, they're going to recruit people from different backgrounds. So I think a lot of companies that, you know, didn't start this way that mm -hmm. are now trying to fix it, they have a, a bigger challenge ahead of them because, you know, if I'm a woman of color walking into a place where I don't see anybody who is from my background, I may not feel as welcome. But at our place, you can walk in and you're like, oh, this is this is a place that is different and feels different and that and where there is a lot of respect for yeah. each other. Um, and I think also really investing in our culture. We see culture as a living, breathing thing. Okay. And, you know, we always tell our team and ourselves everything we do either helps our culture hurts our culture or doesn't impact our culture so how do we make most decisions in a way that helps our culture and that is everything from respecting diversity to um, having delicious meals together and celebrating a lot uh, and you know we do really hard things we're a startup it's it is a difficult thing to build yeah a business, um, especially the more successful you get, the more everybody else will try and bring you down. So this is not something that you do because it's easy, but what mm -hmm. makes it worth it is working with incredible people every day that you respect and have fun with. And that is, that's a very core part of who we are and we've always invested in culture from day one. And how do you find the right people to work for you? You spend a lot of time looking mm -hmm. um, and you look everywhere. You know, I've, I have spent hours a week um, on LinkedIn, um, on referrals, asking people mm -hmm. who they know. And then, you know, you want to structure your interview process really thoughtfully. Make sure you're asking the right questions. Make sure you have a um, thoughtful interview panel who are the other people who are going to be involved yeah in deciding if this person is a good fit um, sometimes there'll be a project component to the interview and hiring mm -hmm. and we always try and spend time with the, the person in person as well you know something yeah. that was a lot harder in COVID but now really spending time in person and making sure that they're meeting several members of the team because this is a big decision for them as well mm -hmm. I think uh, people have personal preferences on things that they want in people mm -hmm. right I, I know I have mine is there one deciding factor or is there something that's really important for you when you're hiring someone yeah I think um, you, first and foremost we want to make sure that the person um, is compassionate is respectful mm -hmm. right that they um, they have the right values yes and that is really important at our place. I think also what we're doing is, is hard. And so we attract people who are ambitious, who are driven, who want to build something, who want to grow fast. I think people who 
have radical ownership because in a startup you have a small team and you don't have a ton of structures in place. That's why you can move fast. Mm -hmm. But that means people have to take ownership and wear a bunch of hats and not feel like any job is too small for them and that they can kind of figure it out. Yeah. And then finally, I think people who can handle difficult situations because when you're building something, you're going to have difficult situations. You're going to have difficult interpersonal moments. How do you show up when things get hard? And how do you show up when things get hard? Well, it's definitely something that I work on a lot. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but for me as a South Asian woman, I was always taught to be very likable, you know, yes, always absolutely. make sure people like you. That is part of your survival, right? Because for me growing up, my parents didn't really even have a model of a woman who could get out there and earn a living and be independent. And so that meant you had to be likable if you were going to survive. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when you've been trained to be likable, you can very easily avoid difficult things. But you can't do that when you're building something. No. And so that is something that I've certainly had to learn to have difficult conversations um, transparently mm-hmm. and compassionately. You can still be compassionate when delivering hard news. And um, to understand that being direct is often the more compassionate thing to do, not avoiding the situation, not not talking about it, not hoping it'll get better or go away, but really addressing things head on is something that has become a practice for me. I've always actually been like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, funnily, whilst I have been taught to be likable, mm. I was always someone who expressed my viewpoint mm. directly and would always say how it is, but was faced with an enormous feeling of guilt immediately Mm. after and very very recently someone asked me when you're getting married I don't know if you've seen my videos it was Mm. my most viral video because people constantly ask me when you're getting married as if it's the only thing as a woman can do and someone recently asked me that question and it was the fourth time in that hour that they had asked me so I said very firmly you've got to stop asking me this question Mm. I don't know I can't keep telling you the same answer. So can mm. we please move on? Because I've got bigger things that I'm doing with my life. Mm. And they responded saying, yeah, you're right. You have got bigger things, actually. Let's talk about something else. And uh, my parents told me that they reported back to them and said that you bit their head off. And I got very defensive, as my parents were telling me. And I said, yeah, but you know what? I'm going to do And they actually, for the first time, didn't. they said, it is annoying. So mm. good you said something. And I remember looking at them thinking, really? Mm. You're not going to tell me off for standing my ground yeah and I think that like you my parents didn't have a woman that Mm. they could see that stood their ground that was firm Mm. I wasn't rude Mm. I just said it as it is Mm. and I had said multiple times three times before that I don't know yeah I can't keep having this conversation you know said it in a jokey way said Mm. I understand you're concerned but you know there's nothing I can do um yeah and so the fourth time I think when I asserted my authority a little bit they understood Mm -hmm. and I think it's so nice to see that change and I think you know we I've learned now to let go of that guilt Mm -hmm. did I do anything wrong did I say it compassionately and I often talk around being confrontational I think being confrontational is the greatest skill anyone can have Mm. because being confrontational doesn't mean you have to be aggressive it just means you're tackling the problem I actually hate in a person when they don't tell me something to my face Mm -hmm. and they say it behind my back I I rarely come across people like that because the people I interact with I'm very direct and I always state that from the beginning if you have a problem please come to me please don't let me hear it from the grapevine and I think in an organization we don't create an environment where people feel like they can 
assert their authority and they can mm. assert their viewpoint, especially if it's challenging a CEO or challenging a manager or challenging someone who's in a position of authority. They feel, oh, I'm not going to be liked. And actually what we've seen in life is catastrophic examples of this. You know, I just did a TED talk and I talked around why conformity is killing our creativity. Mm. And I stated several examples in organizations. You know, in NASA, people knew the Challenger disaster was going to happen. The employees knew that the space shuttle was going to explode and they didn't say because they were afraid of being silenced. Now, so for me, culture is a huge part and actually speaking up up and being confrontational and having openness to new ideas is really important. Speaking of organizations, I recently found out actually at the start of this interview that your husband is your co-founder. Yes, he is. Talk to me about that. When did you meet him? Did you know that you wanted to co-found a business together? I met him 10 years ago. We've been married now for seven. Wow. And we always connected over work. I think for me, a lot of my relationships have always been based, if not on work, then on ideas. I'm someone Mm -hmm. who likes to talk about ideas um, more than anything else. It's, you know, you to connect with me, you kind of have to light my brain on fire. And so we have always connected intellectually and been each other's confidants mm-hmm. around work and projects and pursuits. And uh, we didn't actually start out our place planning to do it together, but um, very quickly sort of realized that we needed each other and that we both brought very different skill sets to the table. So he's my co-founder. He's my co-CEO as well. So we sort of run different parts of the organization um, and then come together and and discuss. And it's mostly wonderful. Sometimes I have to say, I'm watching TV. It's a Sunday afternoon. I need a day off. I'm not yeah. talking about work. <laughs> and then I, I put up an imaginary force field. And if he tries to, to break the force field, I'm like, uh-uh, force field. I can't, I can't <laughs> hear you. If you're talking about work, I don't understand. Um, yeah. So, you know, we do have to draw some boundaries, although we love what we do. So we do tend to talk about it all the time. But it's it's really nice to have someone who you respect deeply and can trust. Um, that doesn't have to be your spouse or your sibling or a parent. It can be really anyone. And we have a third co-founder who is a friend of ours. So we also mm-hmm. trust completely. But it is really nice to start. You know, I've always loved starting things with people. We We have two members of our team who were there on day one who are still there today and they are you know and so many members of our team you know we're only three and a half years old have been here for um in our history a long time and that is really lovely and we also have new team members and that freshness is great because they bring in new ideas and they they shake things up when we get too stuck in our ways so i believe in starting things with people and and i see it as a huge pro um and it's been really important for me to have that community. I love that. It's. A, I was smiling so much when he said that because I connected with my boyfriend over the same thing. He actually messaged me about the podcast. And a month into us dating, we had an idea. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and we built it. We mm. got some PowerPoint presentations together. We pitched our idea. Wow. Then we quickly realized that I wanted to focus on the podcast and he wanted to focus on his own thing. But we always laugh about it to think that, you know, in one month of us meeting, we had created a business. You know, we had bought the domain. And I really believe that it's so important to find people who align with you. Yeah. I also find, though, it's difficult sometimes to draw the line. 
mm. in a relationship where you're always working together. Yeah. So we have our own separate businesses, but I fundamentally believe that a huge part of why our relationship works is because we both have the same values and we both have very similar goals in the fields that we want to evolve in. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that there's that line that gets crossed? You know, for, for, for example, for him and I, we have to now make sure we do a date night every two weeks. Yeah. Because otherwise he would just come to me, we would be working, I would just go to him, we'd be working, at dinner we have our laptops. It's sometimes difficult to set that barrier, especially if you're building something together and you're both super excited about that thing together. I know you said you've put up this little shield, but is there anything else you do to kind of separate your relationship from work? I think definitely the shield is yeah. my tool. It's like, no, we're not doing this right now. And then when we do have that time to just say, please ask for permission before bringing this in, because I think we both get sucked in. And, mm -hmm. and it's like, oh, just this one little thing. I just want to ask you. But I'm like, I just for 15 minutes wasn't thinking about work. Yeah. And now I am again. And I really need to protect that because I love what we do. But. There's also a lot of issues and challenges that I'm constantly thinking about. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you want to just take a break from that so you can come back fresh and energized. So I think just really being communicative and saying, I need this time, I need this space. Yeah. And also holding yourself accountable because, you know, sometimes I'll be like, uh-uh, I set, I set the force field. And he's yeah. like, but, but you just walked into, into my office and started talking about this. So yeah, um, I think it's just that constant communication and then carving out a little bit of time mm -hmm. and setting those ground rules. Boundaries are very important yes. to me. Oh, also we set up meetings. So, okay. you know, I think initially we assumed we lived together. We'll just talk about stuff. What would happen is, you know, we'd be in meetings from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Wow. 8 p.m. we'd sit down for dinner and then, you know, one of us would have this thing we needed to tell the other one about. But we needed rest. Mm -hmm. And so now we try... When I have something I really need to chat with him about, I will put a meeting on the calendar. It might be like an 8 p.m. meeting in our living room. Right. But it's clear. I need to talk to you about this. I need you to, like, show up in a work mindset and work with me versus, you know, be watching a Lakers game and I walk in and, yeah. <laughs> Disturb you. Exactly. Boundaries are really important to me, and it seems like they are for you as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier... As you grow, I think this is what you said, as you grow, there's going to be a lot of people that try and bring you down. And you've just mentioned again that you have a lot of challenges, as, as anyone who owns a business does. What's been one of your hardest moments and how have you learned to navigate through those difficult times? I think, um, you know, for us as a business that um, has original ideas, innovations, we have about 200 patents across our product portfolio. Wow. Knockoffs hurt Right. And there's a, there is um, I think it's very easy for large brands to yes. come in and, and create knockoffs. And they know that even if even if they're violating your IP a little like you're a small brand or, you know, they could bury you in legal fees. Yeah. So um, and we've had, I think, a lot of folks who have who have done that. And some of those have been folks that I looked up to celebrities, actresses starting mm -hmm. their lines with products that are near identical and that is that is hurtful because, um, you know, you spend two years designing something and three months later, someone's like shipped that off and is creating, you know, a lower quality. Yes. Less sustainable, probably not non-toxic, but still a version that to a lot of consumers, maybe they, they don't realize. So that part has been hard. And we've really sort of never um, we've just kind of kept our head down and, and our our way of. Um, reacting is just to stay ahead. We keep innovating. We keep 
launching beautiful new products faster than people can knock us off. And we trust that we're building a brand where people will want to support the brand, want to have the original, understand the impact of uh, going with something else, both from a sustainability perspective, mission and values perspective, a quality perspective. But I think that has been a challenge. And sometimes you're just like, you know, it, you're you're in somewhere between infuriated and heartbroken, and you yeah. have to say, you know what, my goal is to build my business and my brand and my community, and not worry about what what others are doing. There's a lot of people that are going to be listening and watching to this that have the same feeling. You know, mm-hmm. I've I've just done this, and someone feels like they've knocked off my idea. Mm-hmm. You know, someone recently said to me, "There's so many podcasts out there right now, yeah. and you know, don't you feel like people are copying you?" And I said, "No, yeah, because unfortunately, well, fortunately." People go to people for different things. Mm. You know, there's thousands of podcasts in the world, but people will listen to mine because they want to hear me. They're not going to listen to my competitor because they want to hear them. And I really believe that there is space for everyone, but I also truly believe that those who copy will finish your idea and then copy someone else. Yeah. When you have a brand that's got a clear vision and a purpose, you're going to continue to keep building on that. And there's going to be ideas that fill from that, from that vision. So if it's a celebrity that's looking for the next hot thing, okay, our place has sold, you know, 30,000 people waitlist. They're going to then go to the next lipstick. They're going to then go to the next hair brand. They're going to then go to the next lights. And so I really believe that, you know, Mm. there's no need to worry about those who copy because they're going to continue to copy. Yeah. Before we close. And they have to live with that, you know. Exactly. (laughs) They have to sleep with that guilt, not me. So before we close... For those who are nervous or worried about starting a brand and maybe don't have that self-belief, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give them? Well, firstly, I I do want to reiterate, you don't have to start a brand to be an entrepreneur. If what you're seeking is building something, build something. It might be a new company, it might be a new nonprofit, but it might be something within your existing company, your existing organization might be something on the side, a, a little side hustle. Mm-hmm. So I want to be careful because I think that there is this sort of, there is this moment, and maybe that moment has passed a little, where people really put startups and entrepreneurs on pedestals that I don't think were deserved. Mm-hmm. And I think y- you can be entrepreneurial, you can pursue your dreams, you can build something without launching a brand or a company. Agree. Um and regardless of whether you choose to do that or not, I think um, make sure you believe in it because it is deeply joyful, but it is also the hardest thing that I've ever done. And make sure you surround yourself with a support network because um, you are going to live through your highest highs and lowest lows, and you're going to do that for most likely decades, not years. So make sure you are surrounded with a support system you can lean on that you can go to and 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 talk to um you know and then finally invest in in your team and your culture you're only as good as the organization that you build i love that thank you so much you've been so inspiring i wish i could spend more time with you to to learn so much more but i really appreciate you coming on so thank you thank you this was lovely such a joy 